This is episode 215 of the Prepper Website Podcast, where I connect you with resources that will help you live a more self-reliant life. Today's articles are Stories from an SHTF Christmas, an interview with Selco, and The Art of Reconnaissance, How to Improve Your Viewpoint. Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version with some commentary of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website, a daily curation of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Hey, you can make sure that you get the Prepper Website Podcast delivered to your preferred device without fail. We make it very easy for you to subscribe in iTunes, Stitcher, or any other favorite podcast network. And if you do feel you are receiving value from the podcast, we do appreciate your kind reviews. Hey, before we get started into the articles, I just wanted to briefly touch on this. If you if you haven't heard, there was a train, an Amtrak train derailment in Washington State near Olympia. And there's a couple of different reports. Some say there's been three people who have died. Some say six people. I saw this early this morning. I was going into a meeting and I saw it come across Twitter. And I was like, man, this is, uh, you know, just looking at the pictures, uh, it doesn't look like a very fall or very uh, far fall. Uh, it was, you know, it fell off of a bridge. You know, when you think of, of a bridge, you're thinking, you know, like, wow, this is crazy. Because you think of some of the, you know, train derailments in movies and stuff like that. So it wasn't a very far fall for the train, but still, I mean, a lot of people were hurt. Um, some of the reports were 70 to 100 people are are injured. So that number, if there are six people who have died from it, could go up depending on the injuries. But still, I mean, you're in that confined space. And I think there was one one picture where another train car was on top of another train car. And so, man, that's that's really deadly. And just the thing to kind of take away from this is that the people on that train that could have been the most prepared people in the world, right? They could have been like your super prepper. They could have, you know, two years worth of food. They could have a shelter. They could have whatever, everything you could possibly want. But you're still in life. Things happen. You're still at the mercy of, you know, the Amtrak, you know, who, the train, whoever's, whoever's, you know, at, at, at the, in the engine and, and running that and the people that are running the network and all those kinds of things. And so, you know, that's one thing to kind of always keep in mind. You know, when you leave your house, you can be as prepared as you can, but you're going to find at some point something is going to happen. And so hopefully you can manage that that situation as best you can. So hopefully there was people on this Amtrak train who could help out other people that were injured because they knew some first aid or they just had their, their wits about them that they were able to help out. And and that's what you want. You want to be able to to face any situation like that and do the very very best that you can. But life happens, and and so that's why I guess that's why it's very important for me to uh, I prepare and I do as much as I can. But my faith really drives a whole lot for me in uh you know in in the overall scheme of things how I look at everything. All right, so yeah, there's a there's a lot of information there. Uh, Drudge Report had it on the front page. It's all over Twitter. So if you haven't heard uh, about that recently, it'll be on the news and all that kind of stuff. So uh, that was over again. That was an Amtrak a train derailment in Washington State. Uh, I believe near Olympia is what is what the articles are saying. All right, so let's go ahead and jump into our first article of the podcast. Okay, our first article comes to us from theorganicprepper.com. 
Daisy Luther has written an article over there. She interviewed Selko, and we've had Selko, uh, his articles before from SHTF School. We've read his articles before on the podcast, but she interviewed him to talk a little bit about what uh, his SHTF Christmas looked like. And so uh, you, if you don't know who Selko is, maybe you're kind of new to preparedness, uh, he was in... Uh, he was surrounded. He was in a city that was surrounded by uh, forces. And so, uh, you know, they lived. It was really, I mean, it was truly an SHTF situation because they were barely surviving. And so you're going to get a lot of that from this article. You're going to get a little bit of the background story and some of the ways that they handled Christmas and, and the way that they went about that, that SHTF Christmas that they experienced. And then you'll also, um, well, one of the things I always like to point out is uh, because he is, English is not his first language, his his writing is a little broken. I don't know if he does that on purpose or if that's truly his writing there, um, but uh, I, I tend to read it exactly the way that it's written. It kind of keeps a little bit of the feel of the way that he is writing. And so uh, this is in an interview format where Daisy is asking him questions and he is he's responding in, in written form. Uh, so let's go ahead and jump right into this one. Have you ever thought about what an SHTF Christmas would look after an end of the world as we know it event? It, I'm not talking about a minor issue that just affects a few people, but a full-on disaster that changes everything. Today we have a first-hand look at what a post-collapse holiday is really like. I interviewed my friend Selko of SHTF School and his answers are really food for thought. I have learned more about long-term survival from Selko than probably anybody else and have based a lot of my own plans on things I've learned from him. For most of us who write about preparedness, it's research and theory. For Selko, it's real life. This interview is in his own words. I, read over the, I read over the answers to his questions at least a dozen times and thought about how fortunate we are. Even our most difficult times here in our society would have been the height of luxury during the war in Bosnia. But will we always be this lucky? So first, give us a little bit of background. What was going on? Please describe the circumstances in Bosnia during this time. War in the Balkan region, Slavnia, Croatia, Bosnia, Serbia, started during the 1991 and went on until 2000, if you include war at Kosovo and NATO bombings of Serbia in 1999. But historians mainly narrow it to a period of 1991 to 1995, if you do not count Kosovo War and NATO bombing. In some literature, you'll find the name Yugoslav Wars, which is same all above mentioned Balkan countries used to be states in Federation of Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia, or roughly translated to English, it is country of South Slavs. Yugoslavia, as a socialistic communist country, founded after World War II in 1945 and stopped to exist in 1991 with the start of the wars. Shortly prior, the war socialistic system, communistic, fell apart as a part of bigger events the fall of Soviet Union, fall of Berlin Wall, and democracy came, together with democracy rivalry between states that wanted to stay in the Yugoslavian Union and states who wanted independence raised sharply. That resulted in riots and small and isolated fights, leading to full use of Yugoslavian army, which was fourth largest military force in Europe in that time. 
Wars had all features, independence fights, aggression between states, civil war, genocide, realignments, or switching of allegiances as the operational situational changed, backing up from foreign forces such as U.S. and NATO. Through periods of it, you could say that it was an ethnic war or even religious in parts, but in the essence it was war for territory and resources between factions who were in power based on personal gain of wealth and influence only. I went as a civilian and later as a soldier through the whole period of wars. I was in different regions during that period. Harder period of those wars, because numerous reasons, happened in Bosnia, and one of the main feature of that period were sieges of a couple of cities that lasted from few months to a couple of years. Some of those sieges were complete, in terms that everything normal stopped to exist in city. Electricity, water, police, medical services, and everything else that makes normal life every normal service. Death from sniper or shelling was an everyday thing, but also death from gangs because law stopped to exist, or death from malnutrition, lack of medicines, or simply lack of proper hygiene. I find myself in one of those siege cities. I lived like that for a year and I survived. Every day for almost a year, for me, was a constant fight for survival. I was constantly either trying to defend myself or to look for resources for usable water, food, or simply firewood. We scavenged through the destroyed city for usable items because everything was falling apart and we have to reinvent things in order to survive, like the best way to stay warm, to stay clean and safe, or simply to make home medicine for diarrhea or high blood pressure. So here's Daisy's question. When Christmas rolled around, it was obvious very different than any other holiday people had ever experienced. Can you tell us the usual Christmas traditions in Bosnia before this all happened? As I said, I grew up in Yugoslavia, which was a socialistic and communistic country. One of the things in that country was and system was that religion was not forbidden, but it was strongly, let's say, advised that religion is way down in the list of life priorities. On the other side, it was strongly advised that we put aside our differences. We had many different ethnic groups in Yugoslavia and a couple of main religions. In order to build one ethnicity, Yugoslavian, as a result of that, all different religions kind of know each other very well, and people from different religions celebrated more or less or know all religions. Christmas for most of the folks was very much connected to the New Year holiday, again something that is connected to the official socialistic system, and it was just like everywhere in the world, I guess, holiday of presents and gathering of family. For example, going on midnight mass was matter of being together with family and friends and meeting each other, not so much matter of religion, not too many real religious people. I was a teenager more or less, but my memories of that holiday prior the war are peace, good food, family gatherings and presents, and of course Santa. It was huge and mandatory thing that kids gonna get big presents then. Daisy's question. I'm sure that then everything was very different. What were some of the changes? How did you celebrate? Everything was different when SHTF. Yes, living was hard, comfort was gone, and everything was stripped down to the bare survival. A lot of small commodities that we usually do not think about, we take it for granted, was simply gone because of obvious reasons. 
The whole system was out, but also because simply life becomes full of hard duties. To finish simple tasks and obtain resources becomes hard, dangerous, and time-consuming. Celebrations become rare and not so happy and big, not even near, but in the same time they become more precious and needed too. Get-togethers or family become even more important because people learn much more on or lean much more on each other between group or family simply because they needed much more support psychological too than in normal times a lot of religious people lost their faith when they saw family members dying on the other side a lot of people found god in, the, in that desperate time as an only hope being together with family members for small time off became almost like small rituals like a ritual of finding inner strength and support in order to push more through hard times. Yes, religion was a big part of it, but it was not only about religion, it was about finding strength in you and people close to you, family and sharing in between each other. Daisy's question. Without access to store-bought presents, what kind of gifts did people give? It could be divided into two groups. Things that help you in the new reality... All kinds of things that helped you to solve all kinds of problems that SHTF brought. For example, people who were skilled in handcrafting used to make cigar holders out of wood and bullet casings. It was very popular for smokers and the reason for that was because cigarettes were rare and people usually smoked bad tobacco rolled in bad paper and good cigar holder as a combination of cigar holder and pipe was essential for smoking that stuff. It was a small thing, but really important if you were a smoker in that time. Another example was small handmade stove. It was made from thin metal, and in some cases it was portable. Point was that kind of stove need, needed really small amount of wood. Fuel for fire was important and hard and dangerous to get in urban settings to make it really red hot and cook something quickly or boil water. So cool and use, usable kind of inventions. Things that connect you to normal. So this is the second thing that he's saying. Things that connect you to normal. In this other group were all kinds of things that connect you to the normal prior SHTF life. If it was not only cool and nice to have those presents, but also it was important psychologically to taste something actually makes you feel normal again. For example, after living for months through collapse, one simple bottle of beer could make you feel human again and it would somehow give you strength. Sweets or candy, beer, spice, or even few songs that someone play on a guitar for you were precious. What did you do for the children at Christmas to make it special? Kids were somewhat forgotten in the SHTF times. Quite simply, not many people paid attention to them other than keeping them safe from danger. People did not have time to take care about their needs. During the holidays, people usually wanted to give some kind of joy for them or to keep the spirit of holiday alive for them. In majority of cases, it was very poor imitation of holidays in normal times. For example, I remember that making pancakes, jam was made out of tomato juice and very expensive sugar, was considered alone like holiday. Special food or attempts to make some special food for kids were usually holiday presents for kids in that time. Today that kind of food will look ridiculously ridiculous and not even edible probably, but in that time it was precious. Daisy's question. What did families serve for Christmas dinner in Bosnia during this time? 
Traditionally for Christmas and New Year's holiday in this region, here we ate huge amounts of meat and drink wine, so people during the collapse tried to keep that tradition. Again, it was mostly unsuccessful in terms of normal, but in that time, having hot stew kind of meal from MRE was considered holiday dinner, and actually it was very, very tasty and a holiday spirit dinner considering what we usually ate. Wine was out of the option most of the time, but hard alcohol was there. Daisy's question. In general, were people happy and joyous to find a chance to celebrate, or was it grim and depressing because it was so different? General picture looked like this. We were cold, more or less hungry, dirty, tired, and unsure in future. But yes, we appreciate feeling of getting together for holiday, and we were trying to keep spirits alive. Truth is that sometimes it worked, sometimes not. But generally, yes, psychologically it was important. It had its place, it had a sense to get together. It takes some time to try to feel normal again, to remember that we are still humans. Definitely, those moments were not bright and happy like in normal times, but on the other hand, those moments were appreciated and were much more real than in peacetime. Daisy's question. Do you have any holiday stories you can share from this time? Doesn't matter if they are happy stories or sad. I'd really like to know or like to show the reality of post-collapse holidays. It is a big thing, I guess, just like everywhere, to leave presents under the tree for Christmas and New Year's here. It is custom here to buy big bags, kind of motif of cartoons, fairy tales, and similar, and fill it with favorite snacks, sweets, and toys for each kid and leave that bag under the tree. We did not have custom of socks and similar. We had those bags to literally translate the name would be kid package. Of course, it was out of the question to have the bags and sweets and toys in the middle of SHTF. My uncle in that time came into an opportunity to make a deal with a local small warlord or gang leader if you like. The deal was about giving some weapons for food. The guy had a connection with outside world and my uncle made a condition on the whole deal with the term that he will give a weapon for food but the additional deal was that he also need three kid packages. In that time and particular moment, taking into consideration with what kind of people he was making a deal, it was like asking a serial killer to his face to sing a gentle lullaby and my uncle said that those guys simply could not believe what he asked. Everybody was looking for or offering weapons, drugs, violent contract deals, or even prostitutes from those people, but he was looking for kid packages. But they indulged him, and my uncle said that he thought they indulged him simply out of the fun and out of the fact that it is going to be a very interesting urban legend that someone could obtain kid packages in that time. The guy even wrote down the list of sweets and toys that my uncle asked for him. I think those sweets and toys when they came, were one of the most unreal items in that time and place, but they were worth the effort. Here's Daisy summing it all up. It really gives you something to think about. What a reality check, and how fortunate we are. Our version of things were really tight this Christmas is laughable in comparison to what is described above. I can't thank Selko enough for sharing his story with us. I've often recommended prepping with things like cake mix, birthday candles, extra Christmas cards, and items that support your family traditions. And after reading what Selko had to say, I believe it's even more important. You can't overstate the psychological aspect of being able to provide that sense of normalcy. 
More information about Selco. Selco survived the Balkan War of the 90s in a city under siege without electricity, running water, or food distribution. In his online works, he gives an inside view of the reality of survival under the harshest conditions. He reviews what works and what doesn't, tells you the hard lessons he learned, and shares how he prepares today. He never stopped learning about survival and preparedness since the war. Regardless what happens, chances are you will never experience extreme situations like Selko did. But you have the chance to learn from him now as he faced death for months. Real survival is not romantic or idealistic. It is brutal, hard, and unfair. Let Selko take you into that world. Read more of Selko's articles here at shtfschool.com, a blog, slash blog. And take advantage of a deep and profound insight into his knowledge and advice by signing up for an outstanding, unrivaled online course. More details here at shtfschool.com slash survival bootcamp. And so there's links here to, at Daisy's website that you can go check that out. So I was, I was, when I was thinking about all of this, I was contemplating, yeah, I mean, that is, so you have two, two different sides of it. If, if we ever find ourselves in a true SHTS situation, the people that are used to the old way of doing things, they're going to feel this whole sense of loss. I mean, it's going to change you. Even like Soko talks about, he was only there for a year, but it completely changed him. I mean, 365 days and, and trying to fight for your survival and, and you know, all the, the basics. And, and I've read a lot of his work throughout the years. And so I, I know a lot of, you know, what he's written about. And uh, it truly would change someone. And so you would look back on those days and, and you're like, man, if I could just go back to those days, some of those days would be like, oh man, I had a bad day at work. You know, this happened, this happened. And, and when you're in the middle of that SHTF situation, you look back and say, man, I would take that day over any, any other day in SHTF ever. You know, I, I would, I would take that day without a shadow of a doubt. It's going to change you. It would change you. And so uh, you have that aspect of if you were to come out of it, uh, and if you were in that situation, you might not uh, look at things the same and, and vice versa. If you were born into that, if you're a kid, you know, people who were coming out, out of the depression, um, you know, those of you who had parents and, and or maybe grandparents who talk about the depression years or they came out of the depression, you know, they lived differently. They had different mindsets. They they looked at things a whole lot differently than 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 the way that we we do. And so people growing out of that would have a different mindset as well. And so, man, there's just, just a lot here, a lot to consider. You never want to, you know, I, I really like that she said this, uh, you know, SHTF is never romantic. And uh, I think sometimes people are like, yeah, just bring it on. Let's get rid of the government. Let's go ahead and, do, you know, bring on the collapse. I don't know, man. I, I, I don't ever think that that would be a very, very good idea. I think we would all get to that point, even the best preppers out there, the, the people that are, you know, completely, you know, self-reliant, whatever, uh, would, would get to that point and look back and say, man, no, I, I'd rather be back, back there. You know, I, I, I can, I can tolerate this. I can tolerate that now since I've lived the, the SHTF, I can tolerate, you know, the way that it is. You know, I was actually listening to a podcast, uh, the Donald Miller podcast, uh, Building a Story Brand, and they interviewed an astronaut. And uh, he lived up in 
I think uh, longer than a year. I, I want to say it was longer than a year, but not in the the or the international space station. <laughs> he was in the Russian space station, and so he tells stories about that. It was totally, totally different. I mean, totally, uh, totally different than the experience that you would have if you were in the international space station. But anyway, uh, one of the things that he, you know, that he was asked is, did you have, did you feel like you were there was any any uh, competition against the Russians or whatever, you know? And he, he, his thing was, no, we were up there. We were a team. We were, we had to survive. You know, we had, we, we needed each other to survive. And he talked about some of the scary things that happened up there, um, you know, in the space station where they almost lost their life and, and, and different things like that. And they really were a team. They really meshed together. And he was saying up there, there's no American Russian. There is, there is just, you know, you're, you're living your life. You're, you're surviving up there. You're depending on each other. And so he said that if, when you, when you go up there, and so one of the questions was, when you go up there, does it change you? And he says, yeah, it does change you. And so if you could, uh, the interviewer asked him, uh, you know, it, would it change you? If we could take everybody up there for a month, would it change him? And he said, if you could just take people up there for 15 minutes and then let them, let them look down on this earth, then they would, they would see the, 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 you know, the difference in the beauty and they would have a different outlook on life. They would, they would totally see things differently. And isn't that amazing? I mean, there's people going through all kinds of things today. I mean, there's people in hospitals right now who are, you know, um, going through chemo, who, who look at somebody who is completely healthy, who's complaining about their, their job or complaining about whatever. And they're, they're like, man, I just wish I could be in your situation, right? Or there's somebody who is homeless, who doesn't have uh, a job, doesn't have any money. And, you know, they see someone who might be complaining about their boss is this or their boss is that or, or you know, doggone it, I, I didn't get my 15-minute break today. And they're like, man, I just wish that I could have this, uh, you know, have that job that you have. And so there's always people out there with that different view. And I guess sometimes, uh, you know, we're here and we talked about this Christmas SHTF, but we're also in this Christmas season. And uh, I think sometimes it's good just to kind of look at things and, and say things can be, things could always be better and they can all, always be worse. And let's make the best of where we are. All right, so that's over at um, theorganicprepper.com, Daisy Luther's website. Go check that one out. There's always links in all of her websites, and then you can go uh, link from there. Go over to shtfschool.com and go read more of Selko's work. And like always, I link to all of these articles in the show notes. All right, let's go ahead and go to our next article of the podcast. Our next article comes to us from readynutrition.com, and it's entitled The Art of Reconnaissance, how to improve your viewpoint. This is a little bit different type of article that we've read before in the past, but I think it's really good and I think you'll find it very interesting. So let's go ahead and read, in, read this one. Ready Nutrition Guys and Gals, this article will cover some basic techniques for observation as well as some information on how the eyes and mind work. Why? To fine-tune your skills and give you an edge as well as promote information for your further studies. You can use the information when you are in a fixed position and watching, whether on sentry duty or for reconnaissance. These are not just tips that are only for snipers or long-range shooters. These are for the average guy and gal, so let's get started. Gain a better viewpoint with these recon basics. 
Our eyes are the eyes of a predator, pointed forward with the greatest focus in our field of vision being directly in front of us. We see the following in order, movement, color, and the silhouette. Movement is the greatest factor and this is wired into our system to detect threats against us. Two eyes provide us with depth perception, the ability to gauge distance and determine where an object is in relation to us and to other objects. One of the challenges for you is to develop your peripheral vision. Take something such as a door inside of your house and focus on it. Maintain the focus of your eyes on that door. Allow the soft, softened edges or the unclear areas at the edge of your focus to come into view without moving your eyes. Keeping your eyes riveted to that focal point, allow the whole eye to see everything on the sides of that focus and all of this without moving the eyes. The unclear area is your periphery. By unclear, I mean that you can see it, but the edges are not as sharp and the detail is not as defined as the central focus. Your practice is twofold. First, practice trying to identify things on the sides of your focus without moving your eyes. Next, see the limits that your eyes take in objects. This is very important. You can focus on a spot on the horizon, but if you keep that focus, guess what? You will not miss an object moving into your field of vision as you, train, as you train yourself well to see in the periphery. This is because the movement will register in your eyes and on your brain and then you can shift your focus onto it to see if more clearly and identify it. Color, as mentioned above, means several things. Color change is especially important. Suddenly, a mound of snow lifts up and a bright yellow thing emerges. emerges. Yes, a man in a ski jacket. You will be able to detect changes in the color of the general surroundings and with training to use the periphery of your vision can perfect it to be a valuable tool. The silhouette is a little trickier. This involves seeing and identifying something by the outline. Vehicles are usually easy, but personnel, especially if they've camouflaged themselves, are more difficult. Sneaky peats tend to break up their outline with foliage, artificial netting wraps, and other niceties. This is another reason why you want to know the distance you are observing, say over an open area. If you have nothing in front of you, the speck on the horizon, you want to know beforehand that that one inch speck is really a six foot tall man at the distance. Keep your eyes moving periodically to shift your point of forward focus left to right or right to left, as long as you keep it regular. As we learned in Jumpmaster School in the service, don't look for deficiencies. Formulate images and impressions of the normal area you must observe. Allow any variance, the deficiencies as we had in school, to jump out at you. If you have a perfect sight picture, you're going to notice the Yeti emerging from the trees. It is out of the norm. His motion, his looks, and yes, his silhouette. One of the biggest challenges you'll face when observing is the change in light levels, especially dark to dawn and dusk to dark. D dawn to dusk are traditionally great times for an attack. This is because the light is just appearing in the former and disappearing in the latter. The rods and cones of your eyes cannot clear, ha clearly help you determine what your eyes are seeing in accordance with the light provided. The challenge is from a lighted area into one of shadow. Very tough to see what is going on. Another problem is the time you spend on watch. Everyone should have a short shift of about two to four hours, 
but realistically this never happens. Eye strain and fatigue turn the eyes into acorns with drooling and head tipping sure to follow. When watching over the snow-covered ground, be sure to wear 100% UV-protectant sunglasses. You can have long-term retinal damage when your eyes are exposed to reflected sunlight for a long period of time. Protect your eyes and train them to see what you are observing. Practice makes perfect, and in the end, you will perfect these techniques to improve your effectiveness in the area we discussed. Keep fighting that good fight. All right. So a very short article to, to end the podcast, but one where you could possibly start practicing one of those things where you can kind of start practicing paying attention uh, of, you know, on the periphery and, and being a little bit more observant. I mean, we live in a world where everyone is just so their heads are in their cell phones. And I mean, it's right there. Everything is right there. And, uh, you know, they, they're not paying attention. I was watching a video of a on I think it was on Facebook on a uh, a woman who walked right into uh, a car garage because she was on her phone it just wasn't even paying attention it was like in an Asian an Asian town but she walked right into a garage and then she winds up getting hit by a car because she wasn't paying attention so I mean you know we, we get pretty crazy out there and so being able to focus and being able to to focus long enough and then being able to make sure you what whatever you're seeing is you know something that you know you're really looking at and being able to see all the things around you i think that's important so definitely definitely uh, practice that and then i think the sunglasses thing you know i wrote an article when when my dad first bought his property out in east texas well i i wrote an article of my of our first experience and uh in the article i wrote that I had broken my sunglasses and so I kind of wore them broken and then you know it was hot and the sun was it was summertime the sun was beaten down and man I got more ribbing for including my sunglasses in there than anything else I mean people were just just ripping it over and over again like oh yeah your sunglasses what are you going to do in SHTF and blah 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 you you know you're so stupid you don't know what you're talking about and I'm like you know okay fine if the poop hits the fan and you don't have sunglasses, fine. But if you have sunglasses and you can protect your eyes, why not? You know, don't be don't be dumb. And so I don't know. There, I don't know. I, there's still there's just a lot of people out there that are always going to find reasons to criticize whatever you do, no matter how hard you try, no matter what what kind of article you write, no matter how well you do something. There's going to be there's always someone who's not going to be happy with the way things turn out. But I do like the idea of the the sunglasses, not only in the sun, uh, in the sun. I mean, he's talking specifically about snow, but also in you know summertime and in the sun, and uh, definitely in Texas. I mean, that's a, it's a big deal, and so you want to protect your eyes. All right, so that's over at ReadyNutrition.com, and the article was entitled "The Art of Reconnaissance: How to Improve Your Viewpoint." All right, guys, thanks so much for hanging out with me on episode 215. I hope you enjoyed it. Hey, I'd love to connect with you on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And if you haven't come over to the Facebook group, I'd love for you to be over there. And uh, come click click the Join button, and I'd uh, love to have you over there. And so with that, choose to live a more self-reliant life. Choose not to be so dependent on the government, grid, or the grind. Until tomorrow, stay prepped and aware. Peace. <laughs>